The reading this morning comes from Ephesians 2, 12 through 14, Philemon 15 and 16, and Colossians 3, 11. Ephesians. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises that God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body, on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Philemon 15. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer a, like a, he is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean so much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. In Colossians three, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Paul spent years spreading the good news about Jesus. Thousands of people, Jews and Gentiles, responded. Churches sprang up across the empire, scrappy little outposts of an alternative kingdom where Jesus, not Caesar, was proclaimed Lord. Paul dreamed of going farther west, reaching more people with the message about Jesus. Instead, he spent his final years in and out of prison, fighting not for his own life, but for the survival of the church. Barely a generation after Jesus, many of the churches Paul started were fracturing. Paul's final letters, known as the prison letters, show just how fragile things were and how hard Paul fought to hold these churches together. Paul was arrested around AD 58 and taken to Rome, where he wrote the letters we know as Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Paul urged his readers to hold fast to the truth and simplicity of the gospel, not to mention its subversive power. He negotiated the reconciliation of his courier, a runaway slave named Onesimus, with his former master, Philemon, who happened to be a recipient of one of these letters. According to Paul, the barrier between slave and free was being torn down, just as the barrier between Jew and Gentile had been. In Colossians, Paul asserted the supremacy of Christ. No amount of rule following or seeking mystical experiences could add anything to what Jesus did. In Ephesians, Paul reminded churches in Western Turkey that God had demolished the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile in order to create one new people. In Philippians, he shared his secret to finding joy in a prison cell. Whether he lived or died, Paul knew God's kingdom was breaking through. 
During a brief period of freedom, Paul wrote two of his most trusted colleagues, Timothy and Titus, advising them on how to guide the troubled churches in Ephesus and Crete. Paul's freedom was short-lived, however. The next time he was arrested, the Roman emperor was actively persecuting followers of Jesus. Paul knew there was little hope for release. He wrote Timothy one last time, urging him to stay true to what he'd learned. Paul's life did not end according to plan. Many of the churches he founded still teetered on the brink, but his message about Jesus endured. No amount of persecution could stop God's kingdom from breaking through. There was once a young man who grew up as a slave. He lived and he worked on the estate of his very wealthy master, who was a prominent landowner in their small rural town. And as a kid, the young man had been quick to learn the ropes, right? He figured out what to do and when to do it and what sort of things to avoid so as not to get in trouble. And he'd go out into the fields in the morning with the rest of his master's slaves and as they planted and harvested crops, he would listen to them tell stories and swap news that they had heard from the surrounding towns. And he also made friends with some of the household slaves. And whenever he was with them, he couldn't help but notice all of the marble floors and the rich furniture and all of the polished decorations that his master displayed in his big fancy house. And the young man worked hard, and he wasn't treated poorly. Uh, the master actually treated many of his slaves very well, but he wasn't happy. He knew he was smart enough to do more than just work the fields. Right? He was able-bodied, he was young, he was curious. He wanted something more, and as time went by, he started wondering how he was going to get it. So more and more, over time, he found himself stealing glances at the silver serving trays and utensils and all of the expensive things that were being cleaned and carried and carted around all the master's house. And he learned from the older slave stories about the ships that left the port town about 120 miles away, bound for all sorts of places. And so finally, one night, after his master had hosted a big party where a lot of wine and food had been shared, everyone was asleep, and this young man got up, and he made his way through this big fancy house, and he stuffed his bag full of all of the silver plates and anything expensive looking that he could carry, and he made a run for it into the night. And he traveled those hundred plus miles to that port city, and when he was there, he sold all of his master's possessions, uh, for plenty of money, and he booked himself passage on a ship. And when the harbor master asked him where he wanted to go, he said, as far away from here as you can get me. Right? He had immediately become very anxious because he knew that he was in huge trouble if he ever got caught. And even though he could have likely disappeared in a city of that size, he wanted to put as much distance between himself and his master's house as possible, and so he sailed thousands of miles to a place far away. And when he hit land, he worked where he could for several years, 
you know, never staying in one place for too long. He was always sort of haunted by the stories of what would happen to runaway slaves when they got caught. But eventually, he found himself in the largest city that he had ever seen. Wide streets, massive stone buildings, a marketplace full of people and goods from all over the world. And he knew, finally, here was a place that he could disappear. And so he went to buy himself some bread with the last bit of money that he had. And as he went into the baker's shop, the owner was having a conversation with a customer that was ahead of him. And he leaned over uh, the counter that was covered in flour. And out of the corner of his eye, the young man noticed the baker just sort of with his finger draw this little half circle shape. And then the young man watched as the customer, uh, not even breaking conversation with this baker, sort of also leaned forward and drew his own little half circle shape in what became the shape of a fish, which seemed curious to this young man. Um, But pretty quickly, the baker smiled at this customer, and he set down a bag of bread on top of this odd little symbol that had been drawn, and they said goodbye, and the customer left. And so the young man stepped up to buy his loaf of bread, and he handed the baker his coins, and he decided to ask the baker if he knew of anyone that was looking for a hard worker. Uh, He explained that he was new in the city and that he was looking for work and he just really wanted a fresh start. And the baker sort of smiled softly again, looked at him for a moment, and he said, I know who you need to meet. So later that day, the baker led the young man across the city and eventually they came to a small house and there's a fully armed guard standing at the door. And immediately this young man started to panic and he thought about running, but he held it together. And the baker and the guard sort of nodded to one another and the guard reached out, took the keys out of his pocket, unlocked the front door and opened it toward the inside. And against every instinct in his body, this young man walked through the door and into this dimly lit living space where he noticed that there was an older man with a beard who was beginning to get a little gray and he was sitting at a table reading. He noticed this man had shackles on his ankles connected by a chain. And the older man looked up when they came in and he gave the baker a smile and then he looked curiously at the younger man. And the baker said, Paul, I've brought someone to see you. He said he's in need of a fresh start. And so the older man, Paul, looked at the younger man and said, what is your name, son? And the young man replied, my name is Onesimus, sir. Ah, Paul said, your name means useful. I imagine that's exactly what you'll be. And so for several months, the young man, Onesimus, visited Paul, who he came to know as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ in the place of his house arrest in Rome. And Paul taught him all about the saving grace of this man who was the Jewish Messiah in Judea, who brought freedom to all people by means of a Roman crucifixion of all things. And Onesimus almost didn't believe the story of the resurrection. He knew how terrible a Roman crucifixion was and how could someone come back to life after that kind of death. 
But as he started getting introduced to more and more followers of the way, as they called themselves, these ones who identified themselves by the mark of a fish, he saw how they truly believed in Jesus and how they were actually living changed lives in unbelievable ways. He saw rich men talking with soldiers and poor men just like him. And he saw Roman women helping to take care of Jewish women and their children playing together. And he saw these people of all races and classes eating with one another. And Onesimus started to love these people. And he started to love Paul almost like a father. And he worked with these other believers who were called Christians to take care of Paul and deliver whatever he needed as he was in prison. And eventually he got baptized and he grew in his faith in this saving Jesus and he had finally found his fresh start. And one day he noticed that Paul was writing a letter and he caught sight of the line that was written on the parchment of this letter. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. And reading that just made Onesimus so happy. But just as quickly, he was so surprised to learn that Paul had addressed this letter to the church in Colossae, which was a small rural town about 120 miles in from the port city of Ephesus. And Onesimus's insides squeezed a little bit, and he decided it was time to tell Paul his whole story. And so he told him that his former master named Philemon lived on a large estate in Colossae. And he told him about how he'd stolen from Philemon and that he'd left in the middle of the night and traveled all the way across the empire to get to Rome. And he said this all with tears in his eyes. And after his story was through, Paul just looked at him with this compassion and he reminded him that in Christ, he was forgiven. But he also said the last thing Onesimus had hoped that he'd say, which is that it was time to return and to make peace with his former master. Who, as it turns out, Paul had heard was now hosting the gathering of Christian believers in his big fancy house in Colossae. So of course Onesimus didn't want to go back. I mean, he knew that if Philemon still held a grudge, he could very well be crucified himself as a runaway slave. He had no way to pay back what he had stolen. And more importantly, he had found a family in Rome. He loved Paul and these other believers. Of course he didn't want to leave. But Paul was gentle and persistent. He told Onesimus that he would write to Philemon personally and remind him of the truth that he had been taught, that in Christ, everyone is an equal. If he's willing, Paul said, he may even consent to let you return here back to me. But first, it's time to go reconcile yourself to your brother in Christ. Don't be afraid. And so Onesimus agreed. And he set out with another of Paul's co-workers named Tychicus. And he carried the letter that we now have in our New Testament by the name of Philemon. 
all the way back across those thousands of miles from Rome to Colossae. And we're never actually told how Philemon responded when he got that letter from Paul. But based on the fact that the letter still exists, and it's in our scriptures, and it wasn't immediately destroyed, we can consider it very likely that these two men, slave and master, were able to finally make peace after all of those years. Now, obviously I've taken a little bit of creative license with this story. (laughs) We don't know all the minor details about Onesimus or exactly how he came to meet Paul, but it is very true that these two met while Paul was in Rome and they came to know and love each other very much and that Onesimus was sent from Paul with this letter to his former master back in the hopes of reconciliation with him. Paul wrote in his letter to Philemon, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. See how Paul is wordplaying the meaning of Onesimus' name here. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. He's no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and a brother in the Lord. So this short little letter to Philemon was scribbled out and sent along with the other letter to the rest of the Colossian church. And Paul is urging that these two men, who could not be more different, who were physically and socially miles apart from one another, be reconciled in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't often take the time to read Paul's letter to Philemon, right? Even though it takes like three minutes or less. Um, We generally spend much more time reading all of Paul's big theological arguments or, you know, the stories of Jesus in the gospel or even puzzling out many of the interesting prophecies that we find in books like Revelation. But what I love about this book, and it is here in our New Testament for a reason, is that it is a very real and embodied example of exactly the point that Paul is making so passionately in his other letters, which is that in Christ, out of his abundant grace, he has made us new and brought us together, that he's reconciled all people, not just to God, but to one another, that he's broken down all the walls that separate us, and that we are now one body in Jesus Christ, made up of many members, none of which look the same, like we talked about with our kiddos, but each of us having been given unique gifts which, with, with which to love and serve our brothers and sisters. Have you ever heard the expression, you don't get to choose your family? Right? Like, I'm pretty sure the church is a, is a decent example of that fact. <laughs> Right? When Jesus was alive, for example, he called Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was just this hated sellout to Rome in the eyes of all of his Jewish brothers and sisters. He called him to be his disciple, and he called him right next to Simon the Zealot, who wanted nothing more than to obliterate Rome and everyone who was associated with Rome. These two men were called to follow Jesus alongside one another, and they could not have been more different. 
And later, when we read in Acts about the Apostle Peter, he was invited to go to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile in Caesarea, who had had a dream from God about inviting this apostle into his home. And Peter had to decide in that moment whether or not he was going to cross the threshold of someone's home that he had been told for his entire life was unworthy and unclean. And he did. And now when Onesimus returns to Colossae, he has to stand face to face with the man that he stole from and ran away from. And his master, who was his social superior in every way, who could have had him killed for exactly the things that he had done, had to decide whether or not to forgive him and to accept him back, not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. You don't get to choose your family not when you're a Christian. This is how Paul explains this to the Gentile believers in his letter to the Ephesians. This is uh, from chapter two. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ You were excluded from citizenship in the fellowship among the people of Israel, and you didn't know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now, you have been united with Jesus Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death and our hostility toward each other was put to death. So he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. Now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's absolutely beautiful. In fact, this whole second letter to the Ephesians is just gold. I mean, Christ died so that every division that we have amongst ourselves can be broken down because every single one of us is a recipient of God's grace, which we did not earn and which we did not deserve. But I've been forgiven and you've been forgiven and they've been forgiven. So there's no longer any reason for any of us to hold a grudge against someone else because Christ doesn't hold a grudge against us. And if I can be forgiven for all of the ridiculous and selfish things that I have done, how much more should I then be able to forgive the people that I have a challenging time with? How much more should I be willing and called to make peace? Jesus is the great equalizer. 
right? And so we are one family. All of us has been brought into the same family tree. It might be an odd-looking tree, you know, with lots of different types of fruits, even a few nuts hanging off of some of those branches, but we are one family tree nonetheless. And that is cause for us to make peace with each other. So Curtis DeYoung, who is a reconciliation scholar, put it like this, the household of God is an image that beckons the community of Jesus Christ to be a place of convergence for the great rivers of humanity. People of all cultures, races, languages, nations, tribes, and clans reside in the household of faith. It's a big house, you guys. And this is, this is true, but it's not easy, right? We still have a long way to go because there is still plenty of racism and sexism and ageism and classism and tribalism that exists in this world. You don't have to go very far to find it. And even in the church, it still exists even in the church. In fact, sometimes the hardest people to reconcile with are the ones who call themselves Christian. I remember reading a book in graduate school by Christina Cleveland. It's called um, Disunity in Christ, Discovering the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart. And the thing that I remember most, because it resonated with me so strongly, is this idea that we often disassociate most strongly with other people who call themselves Christian because they have a different understanding or expression of faith than we do. Right? I can tell you right now, there are times that I can feel more gracious and loving towards someone who is Buddhist or is Muslim or even someone who is in a clearly challenged mental state on the side of the road than I can with other people who call themselves Christian but see God very differently than I do, who beat people over the head with the Bible and tell them that God is not going to love them unless they do X, Y, and Z. Right? I cannot stand that. <laughs> because we are using the same label for ourselves. We are saying that we believe in the same God and yet I don't wanna be associated with the kind of message that they express when someone hears that I am a Christian. It's hard. And yet God has as much grace for that person as he does for me. It's not my job to judge them. It's my job to love them and to forgive them, and to be in conversation with them, and to try to figure out how to reconcile in the name of Jesus Christ, to see them on the other end of the cross, and to realize the bridge that Christ has made between the two of us. Because if Christ is drawing us closer to himself, we will necessarily be drawn closer to each other. That's just how it works. And we learn through Christ and in Christ how to meet each other in that place of being one body in love and forgiveness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. We are a community and a family, whether we chose the people sitting next to us or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether we look like them or not. 
I mean, and thankfully our community here at Mount Olympus is perfect, right? <laughs> like, we've got this figured out. <sighs> we do love each other really well, and I'm so grateful for that. But we also know how broken we are, right? We know that we are sinners made saints only by the grace of God, like we talked about last week. And hopefully, we can allow each other to be both. That we don't just have to try to show up and only be saints, but that we get to bring our whole selves, saint and sinner, into this room, into this body, into this community, and love one another. And we give other people permission to do that as well. And in your reading this week, if you are reading along in our Immersed Bibles, you will hear more of Paul's letters to believers and churches, urging them to make peace with one another and to let their faith live itself out in love in a way that is totally contradictory to the rest of what their society is telling them. And in his day, the major division was between Jew and Gentile. And today it's worth asking what our major divisions are because there are many of them, right? Not just in our society, but sometimes in our households, sometimes even in ourselves. Where is God calling you to reconciliation? Who might Christ be asking you to make peace with? What other labels or categories of people do you see or hear about and automatically have a negative association with in your mind? We can pretend those people don't exist or we can actually make a Christ-like effort to see them in the way that Christ sees them, which is exactly the way that he sees us as sinners who are broken and loved in the name of God. In the end, it is our unity, and Paul knew this as well, it is our unity across all those boundaries that is going to become our greatest witness as a church. If we can live out and testify to the fact that we know that we are only here because of God's grace, and no matter how different we might be from someone else, that despite all of our differences, Christ is the only thing that is powerful and big enough to reconcile us to one another. He just is. In the end, that is the most important thing. We are sinners saved by the grace of God, trying to be in fellowship and family with other sinners saved by the grace of God. One big family tree. So, may each of us be like Onesimus and Philemon and Matthew and Simon and Peter and Cornelius. And may we find this peace in Christ that draws all of us together as God's big, beloved, odd-looking family <laughs> in the name of Jesus. Right. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you with all of our flaws and failures. We come before you recognizing and acknowledging the flaws and failures of the people next to us and in and around us in our lives. Please help us forgive them and forgive ourselves for not being God. Because we are all imperfect and we will all hurt one another and we will not think the same way. We will not even believe in the same way. But Lord, you are bigger 
than all of that. And by your grace and in your mercy, we can come to know the saving grace that brings us all together. And we can recognize that all of those differences are so insignificant in comparison to the love that you have for us and the desire that you have for your church to be one body. So may we recognize and honor and give thanks for all of the ways that you've called us together and all the different and unique experiences and gifts and backgrounds that you have given to each of us. Thank you, Lord, for your peace, for your patience with us, for your faithfulness to us. In Christ's name, amen.